back in church and back for good, huh? All right. And uh, I'm thankful that you guys are still here. It doesn't look like too many backslid during the hiatus. Y'all remember backsliding? Anybody come from? But you backslid all the time, didn't you? That's, that's fine. Yeah, still do. Still do. Somebody, I was talking about, we were talking, Butch, about Church of God and Assembly of God and Pentecostal holiness, and I was talking to several guys, and they said, now you guys, the, the United Pentecostal you come from, you thought you were the only one saved, and I said, no, we really didn't think we were saved. We just thought if anybody had a chance, it would be us, but we all live with unconditional, eternal insecurity. Aren't you glad for the overwhelming, reckless, secure grace and love of God that we can rest in? Amen. I, uh, a few years ago, gosh, you turn 50 and all of a sudden you tell stories and it feels like a few years ago in your mind, but when you start thinking about it, it was actually 15 years ago. A man and a woman in the church at Christ Church when I was there called me. It was the, the woman that called and she said, I need you to come. We need you to come. We just have to talk some things through. Their daughter I had pastored for years. It was a wonderful family, godly family, uh, upper middle class family, lots of privilege. But the young girl from the time she was even pre-middle school was just troubled and just could never quite get it together. Always in and out of detention and suspensions and just an incredibly difficult life for herself and her family. She eventually began dating a young man in the early years of senior high. Uh, the kid was badly addicted to drugs, came from a very rough life, um, was by the time he was 18 in and out of juvenile detention uh, for, drug, uh, for drug charges. And ultimately, I think the girl was, the young girl was almost 18 when she had her first baby, and then before she was 20, she had a second baby with the young man. Of course, the parents ended up taking care of the kids and taking care of their daughter. Um, I actually performed a wedding ceremony for her and the young man, and within three months, he was taken away for uh, an eight to 10-year sentence in state prison. The young girl moved back into her mother and father's house for good with her two children, 21 years old. Her life just devastated. The parents devastated. She was depressed, she was suicidal. Uh, needless to say, the family was just in a, in a really bad place. But I went to the house and I sat down and we talked it through and after, I don't know, 30 to 45 minutes of conversation, I don't know how we came to this place, but finally the mother, the grandmother, she probably was just in her early 50s at that time, but the mother of the girl and the grandmother of the little kids, she looked at me and she said, you know, if you were God and you told me that you would give me one request, she said, I know what it would be. I know what I would ask. And Ted, without hesitating, she said, I would ask if you were God and you could do one thing for me, I would ask for you to take away the day that my daughter met that young man. Just take that day out of her life so we would not be here. And we sat with that for just a moment, and as we sat with that in the quiet 
and I understood fully what she was saying. About that time, the 15-month-old ambled in, and these two grandbabies were just the love of her life. The 15-month ambled in, Sandy, and laid over on Grandma's lap, and she pulled the baby up, held her cheek against her face, and about that time, the three-year-old ran through, and he pulled up on the couch beside her. And as we sat there for a minute, she wasn't thinking it completely through, but it occurred to me, and I told her, I said, I would, I would do that for you. But if I took away the day that she met him, then I would have to take them too. And as it occurred to her what I was saying and the reality of it, Susan, she pulled the two real close to her. And she looked at me and she said, I rescind my request. She settled into an idea, maybe not settled in, but an idea that we settle in and out of. I think the older we get, the more we begin to recognize the validity and the veracity of the truth of it. Something my great-granddad used to say all the time. He said it so often that I was inoculated to it. I didn't really realize just the, the brilliance of it. But he said, stand good and bad, run on parallel tracks. And they often get there just about the same time. And those tracks are so interconnected, somehow providentially interconnected, that my great-granddad would say, in the end, it might even be difficult to discern what it is that we call good and what it is that we call bad. Good and bad run on parallel tracks, and they generally get there about the same time. Jesus took that a step further. Jesus said you have tough people in your life, people that irritate, people that annoy, people that harm, hurt, difficult relationships. Jesus compared the people in your life, the good folk and the bad folk. Again, it's easy to talk in binary terms, black and white, dualism. Jesus said these people come into your life for good and bad, and he said they're kind of like wheat and tares. It's like flowers and weeds. On the surface, it's incredibly easy to discern what's the daffodils and what's the cuckleburrs. It's really easy to look and see what are the roses and what's the crabgrass. Jesus said the wheat and the tares, they, they grow up in the same garden, the same life. It doesn't just have to be people. The wheat and the tares can be events and circumstances. They grow up, Jesus said, together, and on the surface, it's so clear to discern the difference. And most of us in the garden of our life look and say, boy, if we could just get this out and cultivate this, if we could just propagate this and alleviate this. Wouldn't it be nice to have a garden, a life that all there was was just good? Once or twice in your life, all the ducks will line up in a row. The problem with that is you think that's normal. And if you're not careful, you spend the rest of your life waiting on life to begin when you finally get all the ducks lined up. But Inevitably, there's always a duck out of line, isn't there? Just about the time the relationship's going well, the job starts struggling. And about the time you get the job and the relationship going well and you think you're on top of it, your health kind of gives way. And about the time you get buoyed against your health, something in your extended family happens. And 
Very seldom in life do all the ducks line up. A variation on what John Lennon said is that too many of us too many of us miss life while we're waiting on life to begin because we think it all has to line up. The wheat and the tares, we've got to get all the tares out and the wheat settled in and cared for. But Jesus said, I, I want to say this about that. Though the wheat and the tares are incredibly discernible and distinct on the surface, the problem is subterranean beneath the surface in the substrate of life. At a soul level in life, Jesus said the wheat and the tares aren't nearly as distinguished and distinct. Down below the surface, the soulish level of life, Jesus said the wheat and the tares that are so distinct above the ground are actually indistinct below the ground, and their roots begin to tangle and enmesh. It's true, botanists tell us that they can tangle and mesh until they literally become embedded, biologically, botanically embedded and both have root systems that feed the other. Jesus said what we want to do when we see the wheat and the tares is we want to grab the tares by the collar. We want to grab them by the neck. We want to get them and we want to yank them out. But he said the problem with doing that indiscriminately is their roots are so tangled up, the good and the bad are so tangled up that when you start pulling on the good, Jesus said, or start pulling on the bad, Jesus said, it starts messing with the good. Jesus then offered this advice. He said, at times we have to live in the tension. And living in the tension of the good and the bad inextricably linked together, I think the end result is we might even begin to find a more humble approach to distinguishing what we think is good and what we think is bad. We might begin to realize that our labels aren't nearly as potent and effective as what we thought they were. So Jesus said it's really best in this life just to leave the wheat and the tares there. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 8. He said, and, and I missed this for a long time, he said that all things work together for good. We know that verse. A lot of people can quote that verse. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and to those who are the called according to His purpose. For those whom God foreknew, He did predestine to be conformed to the image of His Son. As Frederick Buechner said, this is a soul-making universe. This is a Christ-making world. Buechner said, He loves us so much, He will make Christ of us all or destroy us lovingly in the process. This is a soul-making journey for sure. There's so much in those verses, but for so long I missed this one pivotal word. All things. Now, before we go to the word, all things, that means all things. That means the stuff we call good and the stuff we call bad. All things work. So the good and the bad, the wheat and the tares. All things work. And then that word, say it with me, they work how? Now, see, I don't like that. I like to, I still, I, I've joked about this enough that people have given me gifts of, of lunchroom trays, but I like, I think fine china are the lunchroom trays because I like the dividers. I don't like my corn juice over on my potatoes. I like the dividers. Everybody says, well, it all goes to the same place. Yes, but you don't have taste buds in your stomach. I ate my corn, then I ate my potatoes, and then I, I know there's medicine for that, but I like my life, and it works for me. I compartmentalize. 
I'm so left brain. I'm not a multitasker. Send me to do something, and if I see something really important on the way, I'll do that and come back and report the thing that I've done. You'll say, well, what about? And I, I can't chew gum and walk. It's just the way I, my brain works. Because I'm such a compartmentalizer, I understand that there's bad. I understand there's tough stuff, pain, whatever. But I like to put it over here, and I like to cleanly understand where it is and control it and have an eye on it, understand its borders, its boundaries, its perimeters. And I like for it to, I, I believe God can use it, but I like it to work over here, and I like the good stuff to work over here. But Paul said, Jeff, all things work together. The tough stuff and the easy stuff, the lovely stuff and the ugly stuff, the, the, the people that you don't like and the people that you do like, the circumstances that are devastating and the circumstances that are glorious, Paul said it's amazing in this Christ-making journey how they work. They work together. I think the Apostle Paul understood this, not just abstractly, but personally. Before he wrote that, actually, he had an experience, and as best we can tell, it was probably his second missionary journey. He was in the, the southern central portion of what we now call Turkey. He had a, a series of churches there at Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Antioch of Pisidia. There were four or five little churches. These were called the churches of Galatia. The book of Galatians is written to this circuit of churches and he had established them on his first missionary journey, gone home, regrouped, and on his second missionary journey was going back through those churches to see them. And uh, things went awry in Lystra, and some folk who didn't like Paul stoned him. It's a macabre scene. We rattle that word off stoning, but generally they would put somebody in a bowl, a topographical bowl, and just a, you know, a shallow place, and they would stand on the rim and they would throw rocks until the person was pummeled to death. I mean, it's just macabre to think about. The rocks begin to connect. The person dodges for as long as they can and then they connect and the blows finally battered them to a heap. Paul was stoned, left for dead. His dead body they drug out of the city. They didn't want him tainting their city. They hated him that bad so they drug him out and just unceremoniously dumped him outside of the city. And what we understand is he had what we would call now a kind of a metaphysical, paranormal, supernatural, transcendent life-after-death experience. We think that this is the experience that Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 12 when he starts the, the verse or the chapter by saying, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. As a matter of fact, he said, I knew a man, and then he goes into this grammatical tool of humility, speaking of himself in the third person. He said, I knew a man, talking about himself, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. There's some things it's just satisfying for God to know, and we don't have to be able to quantify and understand. And Paul said, whether this was an in-the-body experience or an out-of-the-body experience, I don't know. It's like Jodie Foster in contact. I don't know if I'm going to the other side of the cosmos billions of miles away or if the spaceship never leaves the tarmac because it's an inner journey. All I know it was transcendent, and I went into the domain of God. He said, I went up into this domain, and he was, he was living to show you how the Bible works. The writers wrote in the language of their day, which was not just 
alphabet and lexicon, vocabulary, syntax, and grammar, but it was culture and it was scientific language because Ptolemy was the cosmologist of the day, and Ptolemy said the first heavens was under the canopy of the clouds, and the second heavens was beyond the clouds, and we could see the constellations and the stars at night, and the third heavens, Ptolemy said, that was the domain of God where God lived. Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler, they called Ptolemy their hero not because they concluded the same thing. Sagan, Tyson, who my son loves, these guys all say Ptolemy was the first genius, but his idea of the universe was very base now, but at that moment, it was cutting edge. First heavens, second heavens, third heavens, that's where God was, and then the abyss, down deep, tunnel into the earth where it's hot, that's where the devil is. We were still thinking spatially. Every time I say we were still thinking spatially, I remember preaching at my home church, and I made mention of the fact that God was not linear and God was not spatial. And I remember I got attacked by Sister Alphen at the end of the service. She said, I cannot believe that you said the Lord was not spatial. <laughs> Paul said, I went up. I went up into the third heavens. We now know the spaceship didn't go anywhere. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But with his mind confined to Ptolemy's understanding, what he was saying was, forget the science. I went into a dimension with God that is not something we normally experience in a three-dimensional world. And he said, stoned and left for dead, I had this experience, and I saw things there and I heard things there, and I smelled things there, and I sensed things there that are inexplicable. The old King James says they were unlawful to utter. Paul said the experience was so profound that I was, I was coming down the staircase from that third heaven experience. Paul said I was coming down the staircase relishing this experience that I had had with God. I had never had an experience like this. Of all the things this guy had done, knocked off of his donkey on the way to persecute the church, blinded by God. He had had a lot of supernal experiences, but this was the coup de grace. He said, I went into the domain of God, and I saw and I heard, and I so was moved. I was coming down the staircase knowing that when I got back, if I could just explain it fractionally to the people, their lives would be transformed. No missionary work that I had ever done. No, nothing that I had ever done would hold a candle to what I was now going to be able to do with this ultimate revelation from God. And Paul said, as I was coming down the staircase from that third heavens experience, right in the middle of 2 Corinthians 12, he said, to my surprise, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. An angelos of Satan. It's interesting. Translators do have latitude, and the translators normally translate that word angelos there in 2 Corinthians 12, messenger. 98% of the time that word's translated angel. But translators are theologians too, and all translators are queasy to say that God sent a demon. just doesn't seem right. I mean, we know the Job story. We know that sometime God has the capacity, and all this is just our limited understanding, but the Job story seems to imply that 
that God pulled the hedge back and somehow enlisted the dark side for some ultimate benefit for Job. I even think about Simon Peter at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus looked at him in a somber moment when Peter had promised that he was not going to deny the Lord. Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. Satan has asked me for you to sift you as wheat. What does it mean to sift? You bring in the harvest, and you've got the wheat and the chaff together. And the good harvester, the good farmer knows that the only way that you can winnow and separate the good from the bad is you've got you've to take it to the wind, and you've got to throw it up at the threshing floor. And the wind's got to be between 8 and 13 miles an hour, depending on the crop. Because the good farmer knew, depending upon the crop, when you throw it up, there is a certain amount of wind that it takes to blow the bad away, but if the wind blows too hard, it'll even blow the good away. Sound familiar? Paul knew that. He said that's why God's faithful to us and will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able. He knows the crop we are. He knows who can take 13-mile-an-hour winds. He knows who can take 5-mile-an-hour winds. But the point is to separate the good from the bad. I love that moment when Jesus looked at Peter and said, Hey, Satan asked me for you to sift you as wheat. I got to imagine that Peter looked at him and said, and you told him. And Jesus said, I told him, okay. And then Jesus looked at him and said, but when you're converted, see, the sifting and the pain would be a conversion experience. There are some things that the wind can do that nothing else can do. And so there is a biblical motif in Scripture. As my old friend T.F. Tenney said, if you, when you find a biblical systematic, you can pull the string in Genesis and it'll pucker in Revelation. And it'll pucker even in your life because these principles weave through. And we might articulate it differently than they did 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years ago, they probably articulated it different than the prophets did before them. But the thing we're tasting is the same and that is that we're too swift to call some things good and some things bad, not understanding that the stuff of life works together. And it's probably not a fatal flaw, but an immature flaw that we have to think that within five minutes of anything that comes into our life, we can isolate it and say, well, I know what that is. I know what's God. I know what's evil. I know what's life. I know what's bad. I know what's good. Paul was a dualistic thinker too, I'm sure, because he said, I was coming down and I was relishing this third heaven, and as I'm literally starry-eyed in the third heavens, a thorn hits me and it knocks me for a loop. And, and there was no way that I could reconcile that this was given to me by God. There was no way that I could reconcile this and fit this into the providence of God. I, I just... Third heavens, absolutely. I, you can look at a third heavens and know where that comes from, but a thorn? He later described the thorn. People have always tried to figure out what the thorn was, but Paul described it. He said the thorn literally caused infirmities, distresses, necessities, persecutions, infirmities, five or six different things. In other words, this 
angel of Satan, whatever it was, he said it had the capacity to hit me from so many angles that when I was buoyed against infirmities, just about the time I thought I was okay here, persecutions would hit. And about the time I would buffer myself here, infirmities would hit. And, and about the time I was okay with infirmities, it would come in distresses. And it had me so off equilibrium. In the first chapter of the book, he described it this way. He said, that angel of Satan was a sentence of death. It was not a sickness sentence. It was a sickness of, it was a sentence of death. And he said, I had the sentence of death that I might learn to stop trusting in myself and start trusting in God. And he said, and if I've been afflicted, it's for your sake. Because when I was afflicted, I was greatly comforted. And now I comfort others with the comfort wherewith God has comforted me. Paul defined his ministry as not a ministry of power, but a stewardship of pain. Paul said, when that thorn hit me, he said, I just couldn't reconcile that a third heaven and a thorn was supposed to be in the same chapter of life. I like my third heavens protected and I'm okay with thorn chapters, but the same chapter? It's, it's a tale of two cities, the best of times and the worst of times at the same time. Paul said, I, I couldn't do it, so I immediately besought the Lord. He said, I besought the Lord, and most texts say he besought the Lord three times. It's a tough Greek phrase, but a lot of, um, a lot of scholars believe that it was a Greek idiom that doesn't mean Paul besought the Lord three distinct times. It means that he besought the Lord in the Hebrew fashion, the trinary fashion, the triune fashion of prayer, morning, noon, and night, beginning of prayer, body of prayer, end of prayer. In other words, Paul didn't just beseech the Lord on three different occasions. He begged God's in, God incessantly. And, and the begging went something like this. God, I've got this third heavens that I'm trying to steward I've got this incredible gift, this incredibly beautiful thing that I, I want to talk about. But I've also got this thorn that's crippling me. And it's threatening my third heaven experience. It's threatening the viability, the credibility, the strength of this. And he said, I begged God to get it out of my side. This was my Gethsemane. This was me clawing the ground at that olive press until... The soil of that painful place embedded beneath the fingernails of my soul as I sweat great drops of blood with Jesus saying, please let this cup pass from me. If there be any other way, this is not the way I wanted it to go. This is not how I wanted it to turn out. Paul said I had this third heavens and I begged God, please. Get rid of this thorn. And then this incredible line. This incredible line says, and he was saying to me, I love that the translators get that tense right. In some modern paraphrases, the scripture just quickly says, and he said to me, but that's not. It was an aorist tense, which means, and he was saying. He had been saying, he was saying, he was going to keep on saying. He was saying to me. In other words, he was saying it all along, but I couldn't hear him. 
Sometimes our eyes get so dimmed with tears that we can't see Jesus when he comes walking on the water. Sometimes we bite the hand of the one that's trying to help us. Sometimes pain doesn't illumine, it confuses. And Paul said, I was beating my head. As C.S. Lewis said, it's all right to knock on that door, but there's nothing that says that you've got to bloody your knuckles and break your heart. At some point, some doors don't open, and you have to step back. And Paul said, I finally, with my heart broken, battering my head against that door, I heard him, and he was saying to me. And when I was still enough to listen, this is what he said to me about the thorn. My grace is sufficient for you. Which is a euphemistic, nice way of saying, I'm not moving the thorn. The thorn is a vital piece of your life. Paul said, and he was saying to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said, God spoke to me and said, for my strength is made complete in your weakness. Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, my reproaches, my distresses, my persecutions. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said, literally in that place, Christ spreads a tent of grace over me. What I thought was an IV that was going to open me to a dimension of ruin and bitterness, a terminal blow to my life and ministry, this IV of bitterness, once I understood what it was, he said, I, I recognized it actually was a funnel that opened me to a dimension of grace I would have never known without that thorn. Good and bad run on parallel tracks, and they often get there about the same time. Third heavens and thorns sometimes come in the same chapters of life. And, and the young girl sat down with lips trembling, shoulders shaking, and she looked at this one that she loved so dearly. His heart was broken. He was angry. He was hurt. And now through those trembling lips with glistening eyes, she begins prattling on about something of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her and an angel who had spoken to her. And he hears all that he can hear. And through gritted teeth, he almost screams at her, Stop, Mary. Just stop. Because Joseph's like us. He knows what illegitimacy looks like. He knows what, John, he knows what heartbreak looks like. He knows, he knows what it looks like to get cheated on. I mean, it's an open and shut case, right? She's pregnant. He had never been with her. I mean, how else are you going to dress it up? There's not a lot of virgin births in the world. There's not a lot of Holy Spirits overshadowing people. He looks at her and says, it's bad enough that you've done this to me. Please don't blame this on God. Don't get religious on me. I still love you. And the Bible said he sought to put her away privately because Joseph's like us. He knows bad when he sees it, right? <laughs> Surprise, Joseph. Not only is this not the worst thing that's ever happened to you, it actually is the best thing that's not only happened to you, but it's the best thing that's ever happened to the world. Jacob, 
falls on his face at Jabok, 20 years of running from his past, 20 years of knowing he had betrayed his brother, 20 years of knowing that one day he was going to have to face it down. Here he is, and they just told him, Esau's coming with 300 men. Skinny's up. You're in trouble. He falls into that sandy loam beside the little creek, the little ford called Jabok, and he begins clawing his own Gethsemane, and he says, God, this isn't my kid's fault, and so he puts half his family on this side and half his family on this side of the creek, and he says, please, let me face whatever I've got to face, but do not make my family pay for this. And about that time, as he's struggling, wrestling with his own comeuppance, He's accosted from behind, his arms twisted up, he's grabbed by the hair of the head, and he knows Esau's here. Easy. We know bad when we see it, we know bad when we feel it. If it's not Esau, it's one of his men, and Jacob almost resigns, says, it's time. But not fully resigned, he fights, and he fights, and he, and he claws, and he scratches, and he kicks, because he knows bad when he sees it. This is this is the worst fight of my life. Esau finally here, and he's going to get his due. But somewhere, Jason, about like the light shining on you right now, you look like you're having an epiphany. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere in the light, just about like that, that cracked over the dawn, Jacob caught a glimpse that not only was this not his worst enemy, the thing that he had caught, the thing he had thought that had come to destroy him was actually God come to save him. Jeez. Chris, I mean, how long do you have to live before you finally start realizing we claw and kick and scream against so many things only to later look back and say, my goodness, I thought it had come to destroy me? Surprise, Jacob, it's God. And so, if there's anything we learn in this journey of life, after we live with this God for a while, it's that our definitions of bad and our definitions of good and our clarity and certainty and control about what's what and where what needs to go, we live, we live in an enchanted universe where kings sometimes come dressed like paupers and blessings come wrapped like curses, and angels come to us tended, unaware. And Jesus comes to us as hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, and prisoners. The greatest fight of our life sometimes turns out not to be the devil. Sometimes it turns out to be God because God is so vested in this idea of helping us grow. And sometimes that growth comes more through the things we call tears and the bad stuff of life than it does the stuff we call good. And so he looks at her and he says, I'm going to put you away and I'm going to do it privately because there's no need for shame. And swimming in the womb of that woman was the thing he counted illegitimate, painful, and the ultimate betrayal. And yet swimming in the amniotic fluid of his own heartbreak was the God of the universe come to save the world. Surprise, Joseph. <laughs> Jennifer, the thing that you thought was going to break you is the thing that somehow has made you the most beautiful and splendid person. How does it happen? Good and bad run on parallel tracks. 
They generally get there just about the same time. And if you lay off with the definitions and if you'll quit trying to categorize and choke everything out, Ted, and just leave it lay sometime. God comes in, and as my grandmother used to say, God takes the bitter bacon powder and mixes it with the sweet sugar. He takes the stinky raw eggs and mixes it with the flour and somehow mixes all that good and bad together, puts it into the heat of life, and it comes out this sweet and precious cake. But sometimes we like to deconstruct and take those things apart and isolate and control she said, you could fix our life. If God were a genie in the bottle and we had three wishes, if there was a magic wand somehow that we could wave, if this wasn't spirituality and it was magic, you could fix our life by taking that day away. Okay. But I'll have to take them too. I rescind my request, she said. Isn't it lovely that the longer you go, if you get it at all, you begin to take your hands off of things. As Mother Teresa told my friend Mike Iaconelli, Mike looked at her and said, I've come all this way because I want you to pray for me that I would have clarity and certainty she took his hands, threw them on the table, and harshly looked at him and said, I will not pray for you to have clarity. His heart broke. He had been living there with the Sisters of Mercy in Calcutta for three months, waiting on a chance to talk to this woman. And now she throws his hands down and said, I will not pray for you to have clarity. He said, my heart broke, and I looked at her and said, oh, mother, but you've always been such a person of clarity. He said she chuckled, put her hand over her mouth, and said, it seems, it seems, but I have not had clarity. But in the absence of clarity, I've learned trust. She picked his hands up, Sandy, and said, I'll pray for you to have trust. Ah, the beauty, the beauty of this soul-making universe. Let's pray together. Lord, how lovely are your ways and beyond telling are they. How beautiful and good. Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room, surely none of us are exempt from the reality of this incredible principle. We lift our hearts and we understand now why the psalmist said, in all things, give thanks. And the psalmist didn't have to distinguish that you give a whole lot of thanks for the good and a little bit of thanks for the bad. He said, just do yourself a favor and give thanks in all things because by the time it's over, all of the labels may not apply. But all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. With Joseph of old, we lift up the baby of our heartbreak and we say, call him Ephraim. For the Lord has made me prosper in the land of my adversity. With Joseph of old, we look at our brothers who betrayed us sore 
and we say, come near to me. You may have sold me, but God sent me. And he sent me here to preserve your life. If God even uses your dastardly betrayal to in the end save your lives, who am I? So we trust. We trust. We do our best and we trust. Pray these things in Christ's sweetest name. And God's people who know this to be true and those who hope it is, would you say amen? Let's receive our offering now and then we're going to have a little announcement. But God bless you as you get, you receive. So we've been doing a lot of work this summer, and we have some exciting announcements, and they'll probably be staggered over the next few weeks because some of them aren't perfectly clear, but we feel so good about the direction that things are going. And I just wanted to say, it is often a thankless job, but our leadership council, along with our staff, but especially this leadership council, these are volunteers that just have worked an inordinate amount of time but their hearts are so in it. And I tell people all the time behind their back, there are people in this room that I have told, these are, it's just the best leadership council I could ever imagine to work with. They are dear friends and they're dear to this church, but I wanted Jason to come. He's one of our leadership council guys and give an update about a couple of things that are going on. I think within, geez, I would, within 30 to 45 days, staggering new good things could be happening around here, and they're already happening. So, Jason, catch us up. Uh, la uh, I almost said last week. I guess it was three weeks ago when we were here. Uh, you heard from Kathy uh, with a bit of an update. And part of that update uh, dealt with our hunt, if you will, for a new location, uh, a location that will allow us to get back to Sunday mornings that I know we all are badly wanting. Um, Three weeks ago, when we all stood up here, uh, to be quite blunt with you, the, the outlook was a little frustrating. Um, we've been weeding on, meeting on a weekly basis, uh, sometimes more frequently than just once a week, trying to get through this process because we know that we're in a season where when we come out on the other side of this, this church is really going to be on a growth uh, pattern we're going to uh, experience some really great things. Timing is everything. And sometimes our timing is not what really dictates how things happen. And over the last three weeks, um, and even more recently the last two weeks, we've learned yet again that timing uh, is not always within our control. This time it was in a good way. Um, I'm very optimistic to share with you that we have hopefully found a place. Um, we are in negotiations with this particular place uh, as recent as earlier today. Um, the conversation is ongoing. Uh, we're not quite ready to share specifics with you yet, if you will, a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, but know that we are working very diligently um, and as expeditiously but judiciously as we can uh, because we know how important this decision is. In addition to that, um, 
about three weeks ago or so, Stan approached the council at one of our meetings and engaged in a pretty deep, uh, meaningful, and powerful conversation with us about his future, the future of Grace Point, and how those two things work together. I don't think there's anybody in here who doesn't deeply love Stan. Um, I can speak for myself. Uh, I think I can speak for the council. Uh, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for Stan. But what became clear is we're at a bit of a crossroads. And in a very good way, a very positive way, and a very meaningful way, what we've learned is that it's time for Stan to take on a different role, that we're in a season of change. And as a result of that, uh, starting tomorrow night, we're actually meeting with uh, four potential candidates to be our new lead pastor here at Grace Point. What that also means is that Stan's role uh, eventually will take on a bit of a different meaning here at Grace Point. Uh, if any of you follow him on Facebook, uh, I don't think I'm overselling it, if you will, by saying he's literally saving lives on a daily basis. Um, and that his reach goes well beyond the walls of this church and this community. It's also no secret that Stan is looked at uh, by those in the progressive, progressive Christian community as one of the elite few, if you will. Uh, the one that they look to for guidance, insight, encouragement about how to do what we're doing here, how to make a church succeed in a progress, progressive Christian element. While it's the council's responsibility to work through this process, uh, we represent you. We are here to listen to you. We're here to answer questions. Uh, we have attempted, and hopefully you've seen over the course of this summer, we've tried to keep you updated. I realize sometimes uh, the updates may have seemed slim, uh, and it's only because it's, this has truly been a process that we've been working through. Uh, but we are all, when I say we are all, including Stan, incredibly enthusiastic, we're incredibly positive, we're incredibly excited about what these next steps will be. Um, I, I speak for myself when I say I can't wait, not from the standpoint of Stan not being our lead pastor. I Thank, certainly... Thanks for clarifying Absolutely. That. Um, I just truly feel this is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And over the course of several meetings, several very deep uh, conversations, and they were conversations amongst the eight of us, um, I think we all got to a point where we looked at each other and said, this is right. This, this is exactly where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing. So with that, I can say that our hope, and, and I say with hope that there is real foundation to that right now. Our hope is we will be in this new home very, very soon. 
I don't want to give you a date because we're still talking with the other party about this. Um, but we really feel like it's going to be very soon. Likewise, we feel that at or near the same time that we find ourselves in that new home, we will have our new lead pastor as well. And so that excitement hopefully uh, can be felt. And I hope that you guys will take that with you when you share with other people. Um, these new and exciting things that we're doing, a new community that we'll be able to immediately be a part of and let them know in Metro Nashville, this thing can work and we're here. There's so many people going to churches who believe what we believe that don't know about us. And I'm convinced that this will absolutely open those doors wide open to those people. We wanna be fully supportive of Stan and his ministry. Um, you know, for those who came from various backgrounds, I, I equate it to what those churches refer to as missions. What Stan does outside of this church is a very important mission. It's a mission to save lives, to help other churches like us avoid some mud puddles along the way, to share what he's learned over the last 14 or 15 years. I would ask and the council would ask that you pray for Stan, pray for us over these next couple of weeks as we meet with these candidates, and pray for the candidates, even though you don't know who they are. Um, we, we are very much looking forward to seeing what uh, some other people have as far as thoughts go what their enthusiasm is for coming into Nashville. It's no secret, Nashville's a great place to come and, and live in right now. That's why there's so many <laughs> cranes in our skyline. Um, and the reality is there are several people who are, I don't think I'm, I'm mischaracterizing by saying they're chomping at the bit to step into this role because they actually look at our church as the leader for a progressive Christian church. So we will continue to keep you updated. Um, again, my hope is that you sense the excitement. Uh, you'll hear from Stan in just a second because uh, I think it's important that he elaborate on what his vision is for himself, his role, his ministry, and how that plays into the future of Grace Point. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. So I just wanted to say, lest anybody misunderstand, you have not gotten rid of me. I'm still going to be a part of Grace Point, a part of Grace Point as much as ever before, just in a different role. And I, well, I, I'm not going to elaborate long. I just want you to know that the ministry that I feel is an apostolic ministry, scripturally, um, in the last few months uh, and year, I am inundated and overwhelmed. I have two two pieces of ministry that lead me away from here continually. One is LGBTQ advocacy, something that I would have never, the kid from Northeast Arkansas, Cotton, I would have never thought that was going to be me. But from the first time we talked on the phone, I, God picked me. And for whatever reason, this weekend I was with the 10 conference, LGBT people who had to start a denomination of just LGBTQ people in 1988 because they couldn't be here, they couldn't have this. It was their 30th anniversary and they brought me up. I was the only cisgendered 
heterosexual in the room, they brought me up and said, because of what's happening now and because of churches like Grace Point, our denomination has thankfully become irrelevant. We don't have to have just churches. Just churches for gay people. Progressive Christianity is a burgeoning, bubbling, transformative reform movement. And people all over this country are looking to this church. I am not, to say I'm inundated perhaps is too strong, but it's beyond what I can handle. Um, the amount of calls of young pastors around this country that are calling me and asking me to come and help. To help them understand progressive theology, to understand what it means to take a church inclusive. Frankly, those callings at 50, I never fancied myself to be 50. I never fancied myself to have accumulated some wisdom. But at some point, it's false humility not to look at the hard knocks and the difficulties and the struggles of life and say, yes, through this 15-year process, through 34 years of ministry, I do have something to give. I do have something to represent from you good people outside of here. I knew this three years ago down deep in my gut. My best friend, Justin Pitts, sitting over here, and he's probably the one I've confided in most for three years. I have wrestled with feeling like a failure because I come from a world, Jennifer, when you start pastoring, you pastor it all the way to the end. But the reality is the ministry that I have outside of this place should not harm this place. It should literally be launched out of this place and it should bless this place. But this church needs a new, fresh set of legs and eyes and heart. The four young people that we're looking at for this role are incredibly seasoned, sharp, late 30s, vibrant people that I've had a role in all of their lives over the last 10, 15, 20 years, and they're just stellar. And they are going to come in and do far better than I can do. They are more culturally relevant, they have more stamina, and um, they're really excited. So this is, this is emotional for me. I'm, 15 years ago, she wasn't even born. Stan Jr. was five. And we came in here and we started in Grace Point. She asked me today on the way over, she said, now are you still gonna own it? I said, sis, please don't say that out loud. Um, and she was talking tongue in cheek, but we never have owned it but it sure has owned our hearts and it's been where I've raised my kids and it's where I'm going to continue to be and I'm going to continue I'm going to work for whoever the lead pastor coming in here I'm going to be the best I think I'm going to be the youngest and best pastor emeritus of all time and I'm so looking forward to what God's got for us and to be able to get this new location and this new person in here at the same time it's going to be really beautiful so thank you for not booting me because the last few years have been tough. I, I knew that I was needing to transition this. Frankly, I thought Melissa was going to be that and we all know that didn't work out and, and there was a lot of heartbreak in that that's really hurt all the way around but through all of that, all the way our Savior has led us and we're here and folks we have something incredibly beautiful and our best days are ahead and that's not a cliche. So thank you for your understanding and your hearts and now let's just do something really good for God can you say amen okay I'm still going to be now I'm not here next week so I'm not bailing next week I'm going with Carol and Ron Miller because we've got Timothy's gift 
heading out. But a friend of mine's preaching next week, and then we'll be back 26th, and maybe even by September, Jason, we'll be heading to the new spot and back to Sunday morning where the Holy Spirit actually works better than he does on Sunday night. So anyway, God bless you. Thank you. And don't get all sentimental and hug my neck. I'll still be around. Okay. Okay.